Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Investor, your bi-weekly reality check on investment, personal finance management, and macroeconomy. It's our first episode today, and we are going to discuss about a very timely topic, investing in times of high inflation. Now, towards the end of this discussion, we are going to take a few lighthearted questions, including our guest's favorite book recommendation for an investor, and also his favorite person to invite for a dinner party from the industry. So stay tuned. Now, my guest today is Soham Das. He has uh, 13 plus years of experience behind him in capital market industry, specializing in emerging market equities, global leverage funds, and global macroeconomy. He has previously worked in hedge funds and at wealth management desk of US and European international banks. In addition, Soham invests in Indian markets primarily with a strong focus on microcap investing blended with a top-down global macroeconomy check. The composite portfolio and his management has yielded returns in excess of 38% CAGR over the last five years. So, Soham, welcome to Rational Investor. Thank you, Vajira. It's an honor and a pleasure to be on your show. Thank um, you for inviting me. It's real to have you here. So let's let's do this. Uh, to start off, the about the choice of topic. Now, inflation is is running hot everywhere. Frontier market, emerging markets, developed markets. Nobody's left behind. And central banks have been behind the curve for the longest time, and now they are unapologetically trying to tame the inflation, and that at the expense of growth. So the big question is, in times like this, what are the investment and asset allocation themes an investor can look at? Soham, let's, let's begin from there. Thank you, Vajirat. It's really an important and pertinent question. Let me start with the short answer first. In times like these, when a raging hyperinflation is on, Investors should really focus on any company which is A, asset light and or intangible asset centric. Let me tell you why. In times like these, investors should always be cognizant of the real economic earnings that they will enjoy and not just focus on accounting earnings. When accounting earnings is matching with the real economic earnings, we can really say that the accounting rules and principles and guidelines are really working as, as, as intended. But we must be cognizant of the times and the instances when they do not. Because we have to understand this point that the very raison d'etre of accounting principles to exist is really to report economic earnings reliably, consistently, and in a standardized way 
across time frames and companies. But the problem is that accounting principles themselves are a victim of skewed rules and discretionary stances. Mm. Let's take fixed assets, for example. Companies are not allowed to mark up their fixed assets, keeping in tune, tune with the times when the current replacement cost rises. As a result, a fixed asset is always carried at book. So what really happens is the depreciation, which is a function of how much asset is carried on the book, is also running as per the historical cost value. Now, this is all right because the assumption is I, over the course of the lifespan of a machine, I charge some amount of depreciation per year, put them together, and at the end of the lifespan, I spend that amount and purchase a new machine. Hmm. The tacit assumption is that the price of the machine will not really change. And that is okay because, because price stability is really built in with the modern capitalist system. But what happens when there is no price stability? When inflation and hyperinflation as, as such rules in. So an asset purchased at X price becomes 3X overnight. As a result, the depreciation which should have been charged is always undercharged on the accounting books. So let's 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 take a very very precise example. Uh, let's take a Sri Lankan company which has purchased uh, a fixed asset worth hundred thousand Lankan rupee uh, at the start of the year one. Its age is its useful life is ten years. So the annual depreciation charge that will be uh, shown in the PL statement will be 100,000 divided by 10 uh, because it's a straight line depreciation. So 10,000 Lankan rupee every year. So that would be the blue bar. Pardon? Yeah, exactly. That is the blue bar. There is a blue bar. And because the, there is price stability, let's assume there is, the machine is also current market price is similar, maybe $105,000 uh, Lankan rupee or 110,000 Lankan rupee or something like that. So the effective, effective depreciation that should have been accurately shown and that is actually shown, there is not much difference. Perhaps 500 Lankan rupee over, the, over there, 1,000 Lankan rupee over here, that's it. But what happens when the same machine really changes price because inflation has come in. A hundred thousand worth Lankan rupee machine might be trading at say three hundred thousand Lankan rupee and is available for that much amount in the market. And I mean I don't mean financial market, I mean general general industrial markets. Where is that two hundred thousand rupee shortfall going to come from that is going to come from investors pockets after all so what does it really mean it means that the depreciation that should have been shown in the pnl statement had there been a restatement of the fixed asset is far far more than the depreciation that is actually shown today in today's circumstances as a result, 
the depreciation is understated the reported depreciation is understated compared to what should be as a result earnings accounting earnings is overstated compared to the actual earnings actual economic earnings an investor enjoys what the conclusion really implies is this that it's a problem where mm-hmm. the investors are at the losing end so this entire problem really rears up badly in cases of asset heavy companies in inflationary times keep lowering the assets or the asset intensity of a company make it more and more asset light this understatement problem or rather overstatement problem vanishes to the extent where if you make it completely intangible asset heavy for example a technology company a brand a brand products company fmcg company a service human human resource based service company a product based company all of these ha- suffer from an understatement problem the reported earnings is actually understated compared to the real economic earnings that a shareholder enjoys the reason because all the investing ex- expenses are expensed out from the pnl because just because they are going into building brands they are going to building rnd they are going to building uh, human resources so the conclusion really is that asset light in asset heavy out and that's a theory i mean that's that's well and good but if we really want to test this it is mm-hmm. better to actually uh, build a kind of a ratio where we are basically testing companies and their performance over a period of 5 6 7 8 12 years or 15 years of period on this aspect to test out this phenomenon so what we did was we built a tr- ratio where we are kind of summing up the capital investments over a period it can be it was 5 years for our case and for the for the results that i'm going to show and uh, some of the depreciation the closer that amount is to the capital investments uh, you know capital investments better it is and lower the ratio will be if depreciation is much more than the capital investment then the ratio will be less than 1 if actual capital investment is far far more than the depreciation the ratio will be higher so the l- lower the ratio is the better it is for investors and we sorted that out in terms of uh, quintiles so top 20% of the companies will be quintile 1 and top 20% as in the least the companies with the least ratio will be the top 20% the most yeah. ratio will be the bottom 20% so and when we checked it we ran it on indian indian markets and the sri lankan markets we found that there is a tangible alpha to be had you go long on the companies who understate their accounting earnings and uh, go short on companies which overstate it you create an alpha of up to 6% you go long in the first and second quintile and you short the fourth and fifth quintile you create an alpha of 5% Wow, okay this this is phenomenal so did it yield the same results you know this cap debt results did it yield the, the, the same kind of results for both sri lanka and india 
No, this is a mix. The, the universe that on which it is tested was okay. a combination of Sri Lankan and uh, Indian companies. Uh, okay. So your uh, Colombo All Stock Index and uh, and uh, NSC 500 uh, was mixed together to okay. to build it. Yeah. So you can see the quintile one and quintile two. That is the companies with lower uh, cap debt ratio, that is capitalization to deposition ratio, are outperforming the ones with a higher uh, capitalization to deposition ratio. So yes. So what the bottom line is, theory matches with the empirical results. Good news. Well, this this is phenomenal. I mean, to be honest, uh, this is not a ratio I have actually looked at. And then that's actually very, very interesting point it's that a, you put forward. Right, right. It's a, it's a, uh, it's still not popular because it is uh, a reasoning from the first principles. And I really have to uh, acknowledge the work that OSAM has done on this. O'Shaughnessy Asset Management has done on this. Uh, it is basically their uh, initial idea, their research on the U.S. markets that uh, brought this idea forth. What I did was I just invented or rather transplanted that idea for our emerging markets. And lo and behold, it works because it's it's starting from the first principles. Right. This, this is just phenomenal. So I think overall, to, to sum up what you said, I mean, it, it's this, this emphasized the importance of scrutinizing the financial statements, like, especially in times like this in identifying the uh, the impact uh, on economic earnings. Now, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, you're going to like this now. Now, to to drive the point home, um, I remember some time ago I I, I read this um, article on on CFA Institute website, and I really like this quote um, from Abraham uh, uh, Brilov. Uh, he's a, he's an accounting scholar, and uh, he said that uh, financial statements are like fine perfume they are to be sniffed but uh, not to be swallowed very well yeah. spoken golden words actually <laughs> yep True. absolutely absolutely so i guess the the, the bottom line is um asset leased asset like companies are in and i believe preferably yep. the high margin the one with the greater pricing power Yep. And that would be one of the best places to be in when inflation yep. is running hot. So yep. on, that, on that notion, you know, how would be the ideal investment playbook would look like, in your opinion? In inflationary times, it is simple. Go asset light. Go, go into those companies which are intangible assets heavy, even. Companies with a pricing power companies who's who earn in uh, USD but spend in Sri Lankan rupee uh, so you combine these parts and you really have uh, something very interesting over there they will at least uh, protect you uh, and your purchasing power to a certain extent uh, to a certain extent uh, till inflation rolls in but remember this point that uh, Capitalism and stock market and equity performance, all these things are really a function of how well a society is performing. Inflation really hits at the trust center of a society. Can I trust tomorrow's prices or not or today's prices or not? So 
a low trust environment is going to be bad for equity. So 20%, 30%, 40% of inflation that Sri Lanka is seeing uh, should be okay with these kind of equity assets. But any, any country which sees a prolonged inflation for a long period of time, uh, equity will, 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 will underperform the long-term inflation. So equity are not really a guarantee to always protect from raging hyperinflation for long periods of time. But yes, uh, to a certain extent, equities are great hedges, provided that you select properly. Uh, so I'm curious, you didn't mention about REITs. Now, REITs, they are historically known to be one of the best inflation hedges. So, okay. Um, Partly because, uh, again, uh, there are different types of REITs uh, with the underlying uh, assets being different for each of them. So there can be commercial property REITs, there can be farmland REITs, there can be even uh, tourist lodges REITs, and even there is cloud data center REITs. Uh, so, so really, uh, all REITs might be real estate investment trust marketed as one, but not all of them are similar so uh, anything that has again the same thing depreciation so any REIT which whose underlying has a benign depreciation compared to the capital investments that is better so for example uh, farmland timberland uh, kind of uh, ki kind of a REIT will always be a better bet than say uh, a tourist resort kind of a REIT. Uh, but then, if you do not really have a choice, go for the real estate exposure that you have. At least it's going to grow compared to companies who actually fall during times like these because, let's admit it, inflation is not the only problem that has come through. It is the overall sovereign risk that has come through, including the credit uh, spread, sub, uh, credit spread explosion that has come through. So Sri Lankan companies are suddenly very, very are being perceived as very, very risky, even though whatever their fundamentals might be, they might not be as risky uh, in 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 uh, other times. So as a result, their stock prices fall. So it's basically anything that protects your uh, purchasing power plus protects and gives you a nominal growth is great so yeah uh, REIT is a great option uh, if you have any that's great if you don't have any then uh, at least try to get some real estate exposure by yourself but yeah right now about um, the the REIT experience uh, here in Sri Lanka uh, the the SEC amended the Unitrust Code in August 2020 because uh, regulators felt that uh, it would be easy to implement. I mean, they can implement it faster if it comes under the uh, mutual trust structure. Because I think the countries like Australia and Singapore, they have taken the similar route. Whereas mm -hmm. uh, countries like India and Pakistan, um, they have, uh, rather than uh, taking the mutual trust route, you know, they have... Yeah. Uh, try to take uh, REITs as, as a separate product, you know, with, with separate regulatory framework. So yeah. it has taken time. So that was the idea behind uh, uh, 
going through the uh, mutual trust uh, route. But the, the, the problem is uh, there's a 4% stamp duty uh, that needs to be paid to the provincial council. Mm-hmm. So this this is this is huge because if we are talking about a seven percent yield and on top of that yeah. another four percent, that's yeah. a lot. And yep. uh, so this is going to bring down the yield, and uh, this is an yeah. disincentive, this in, uh, incentive for both owners and the REIT holders. Yeah. Now, uh, I remember in two thousand fifteen, uh, the budget, uh, the fiscal budget proposed to remove the stamp duty for listed REITs. Now that was hoping to you know, implement REITs very soon in the market, but uh, it never came to fruition. Uh, now, mainly because uh, the stamp duty that comes under the purview of the provincial council and not under the purview of the parliament. And stamp duty is one of the largest revenue sources of provincial councils. So this is where the problem arises. Uh, now, the SEC and the Columbus Stock Exchange, they are formulating uh, different models to overcome this challenge. And of course, in yep. addition to that, there are few other regulatory concerns that, that kind of impeding the implementation of REITs in Sri Lanka. I mean, ideal, ideal time to have REITs, uh, you know, in times like this. So how is the, how is the REITs experience in India? How long has it been implemented? How's the you know take up uh, has been so far? So REITs are uh, in India are a new product, uh, and uh, so there are two aspects to it. The first thing is the overall sophistication index, if I can put it like that, of uh, Indian investors are not uh, really that much. Plus, the product choices are not very high. We have got some investment uh, trusts as well uh, in bits, uh, so. Um, we have got a combination of commercial properties coming together as REITs and they are being securitized and sold as paper. Uh, but overall, the idea over here is, uh, I mean, yeah, REITs are good, but it's very boring. Uh, so, so, so that's the that's the basically the idea over there. Uh, on top of it, I think. The fixed income nature of uh, REITs are are a concern uh, because uh, again India and Sri Lanka might be different in these times, but both are emerging markets and with a high baseline inflation. So mm-hmm. uh, fixed income uh, having having basically an uh, fixed income like uh, exposure in the portfolio. Does not really gel well uh, that much uh, with the Indian investors, especially when the flows are not getting directed, when it has not really captured people's attention. So, what really have uh, you know what what the investors really have on their side is the uh, fixed cash flows, and that is not really cutting it for them. Uh, the day when real estate investment trusts start uh, behaving like real 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 investment assets like the underlying assets which is a combination of both fixed uh, fixed income plus equity portion of it as we are taught in uh, academic uh, courses and syllabuses and uh, cfa courses and all those things uh, but uh, the day that happens investors will wake up to it uh, but the, right now the overall appeal is a bit a bit muted i see 
Interesting. Right. So now my second question. Uh, now, countries with stubbornly high inflation, uh, that of Zimbabwe, Venezuela, uh, which asset classes have performed well in high inflationary times? Okay, again, um, I'll just go back and circle back to the original, uh, to the answer that I gave a few moments back was this, that equity market performance really is a downstream effect of how society operates. Uh, societies with high inflation for a long period of time, those societies see a widespread mass scale erosion of trust. And as a result, uh, equity cannot really give that strong a shield from uh, from the inflationary forces that ravage a society. So I'll give you an example of Zimbabwe. Now, in the Harare Stock Exchange, uh, the stock which has really performed the best is a departmental store, which, which basically uh, sells and supplies food and grocery and things like that now we are all aware of how much the inflation has been uh, on a annual basis for zimbabwe it's an astronomical amount but when you compare the performance of a stock particular stock like this you will understand that inflation wins that war so the best performing stock was uh, just grew by 4x in five years, I think. Uh, 4x so, in five years, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's Zimbabwe. Venezuela saw something very similar where stock exchange ceased to exist metaphorically, not literally, metaphoric metaphorically. Because uh, the only thing happened in the stock exchange was the trading of government securities. Uh, the exchange rather only had government security trading and the daily volume in the stocks really went, uh, you know, it, it dropped off a cliff. And whatever was being traded was traded in American exchanges via ADRs. So, uh, for a long period of time, 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, and stretching back to 1999, 2000, 2001, 2003, all this time, you can see most stocks have absolutely zero volume and flat price movement. I mean, there was no price, no, there was no trade that was happening, actually. So, so off late, though, uh, the, the, the uh, companies that have uh, started uh, making a comeback is uh, so banks have started making a comeback again a service-oriented fixed asset light company uh, it's Banco Caracas uh, which has been making money and uh, the second uh, best company that has uh, posted the second best results is a real real estate management company uh, so these are the two societies where inflation has been very high for very long periods, periods of time 
then there are company there are countries where inflation has been high for some period of time uh, take turkey for example so in turkey the best performing business was again no surprise a service based company banks so uh, the name bankasi is turkey uh, has been a blockbuster performer in 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 turkey uh, it has gone 4x in the last 5 years and uh, mind you bankasi uh, bankasi is turkey uh, has uh, posted this result in an inflation environment which is far closer to sri lanka than zimbabwe or venezuela uh, turkey is uh, showing 38% inflation rate now if i if i have my numbers right because this is the number that i have been uh, seeing it from the uh, from the usual macroeconomic sites uh, then there are other real estate management company which has gone up not so much uh, one and a half x in 5 years uh india during 1970s had persistently high inflation uh and what performed was again brand uh, related products uh brand related companies uh companies which had a huge amount of intangible assets uh in their in their uh, balance sheet uh companies which had very strong uh which had very strong uh brand recall think ponds i'm not quite sure if ponds uh, if sri lankans are uh, oh, are familiar with ponds or not mm-hmm. it's the mass market mass affluent cosmetics that every indian used including me yeah. <laughs> i mean my mom made me do it but yeah uh, ponds uh, think lipton the tea the premium tea that you will be serving your guests with if you want to impress them think colgate palmolive the premium uh, toothpaste that india brushed with and i when i say this today colgate palmolive has become really uh, mass market mass affluent thing very widely affordable and things like that but colgate palmolive was at that point of time a foreign brand and we did have our a lot of indian brands but colgate palmolive really took the cake uh, think about uh, mncs like ingersoll rand so ingersoll rand uh, and then there were companies there were other many other companies as, as well including gillette and all those things many times uh, companies like these have very strong brand names and these brand names are really uh, they stand very well uh, during inflationary times us saw a very uh, strong upsurge in the 1930s uh, in the fixed asset in in sorry in the fmcg based companies and because fmcg based companies uh used the advertising and marketing agencies a lot they had pretty good pretty good uh you know timings uh so one interesting point that i kind of missed out uh, for zimbabwe is this thing because we have been talking about equity but mm. it is not always necessary that uh, what makes money is always there in equity side so uh, for zimbabwe at least uh, one one uh, one personal account was that all that they made money during uh, in zimbabwe was farmland agro warehouses and second hand cars so so uh, yeah there you have it okay okay why why second hand cars because i mean did did they have a bop crisis and the government imposed restrictions on vehicle imports 
because if, if that is the case, then the situation it's close to home. Yeah, it's very much okay. So uh, I mean, funny you mentioned it because uh, again, uh, inflation or macroeconomic problems do not come in isolation. They bring all their friends and family together. So. Uh, you know, you want to, uh, you know, have uh, inflation controlled, uh, you would like to bolster your foreign currency reserves. You want to bolster your foreign currency reserves, you would not like to import. Uh, Zimbabwe doesn't, doesn't really have a lot of manufacturing uh, industry with it. It has a lot of raw material mines and all those things, but uh, not value addition, those kind of industries. So it had to import a lot of cars. Uh, so you get the idea what I'm, where I'm going mm -hmm. into. So once capital controls came in, uh, all that you are left with is secondhand cars because A, they are utilitarian, they are functional, uh, people need it. And uh, secondhand cars, uh, you know, uh, there's a scarcity of it. Plus, what's better is that again, if you take a look at it, at a car's deposition schedule, uh, so most of the deposition happens in the first three, four, five years. Yeah, so, yeah. so, so, yeah. Yes. Yes. Right. So let's let's move to the next question. Uh, well, so I'm uh, now. Um, I would like to look at um, asset allocation strategies for different type of investors. Uh, let's begin with institutional investors. What in, in an environment like this, in an environment where inflation is stubbornly hot, what kind of an asset allocation strategies would you prescribe for an uh, institutional investor? Very interesting question. Thank you. Uh, okay, so the way I see it in my mind's eye about institutional investors, they are sophisticated. They have a staying power and they have a decent portfolio size. Now, if these three things are to be put together, then an investor, such an investor, must really position their portfolio by peering into a Sri Lanka that is 18 to 24 months from now. You cannot really uh, invest keeping today in mind. So we have to imagine how Sri Lanka will look like in 18 to 24 months time and then take a call. But there are a lot of moving gears and and the 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 developments are on towards resolving the current crisis. And I personally am hopeful because talks with IMF are on and on IMF study says that uh, the median debt haircut that happens during these kind of crisis is at least or on average 50%. So uh, half or 50% debt reduction is on the cards. But the catch is again, the time to resolve it takes time. So it's about two years. So again, it gels well with how basically Sri Lanka will look like 18 to 24 months of time, in 18 to 24 months. So now if we are to assume and understand and think that Sri Lanka will come out of this once in a generation, once in a lifetime crisis, 
then one must basically position their portfolio towards that kind of a world distressed assets for example real estate oriented distressed assets for example luxury upmarket properties your distressed corporate papers corporate real estate all of these are down in the dumpsters right now because there is no consumer demand because gdp has fallen off the cliff and and the entire works once the crisis starts resolving consumer confidence will slowly come in credit spreads will tighten and what will happen is that these kind of assets will perform well now the reason that i am trying to uh, bring luxury up market properties is because post world war 2 italy saw a huge demand destruction as well as supply destruction and there was wartime shortages and everything else now of course there was a european reconstruction package that was given to europe and as a result anyone who has basically invested uh, in these kind of pro consumer demand asset classes made money so you really have to so an institutional investor really has to take a call as to what kind of for sri lanka does he or she envision my opinion is this thing that of course consumer demand will not be really uh, going gangbusters it will take a lot of time for this entire thing to wash away but at least sri lankan society can start limping back towards normalcy so that's that's the point so uh, even if even if these asset classes are not really possible uh, for you uh, so investing in farmland timberland uh, agri warehouses uh, makes a lot of sense because uh, again uh, between a debt reduction to normalcy it will be a long drawn protracted uh, protracted kind of a path and uh, yeah that's that right so so i'm going to backtrack into um, some of the uh, equity themes you recommended now you suggested uh, in times like this uh, consumer staples that have a strong brand name uh, having a strong brand name means you're going to have a greater pricing power yeah uh, so hopefully hopefully so that would be a place to be in so um, other defensive sectors like um, let's say utilities uh, healthcare and pharma uh, what do you think about these sectors i mean would you would you invest in in these themes in times like this uh, i do not really like to take uh, note of a bunch of sectors together and call them defensive sectors in fact i go the opposite way where basically i unpack individual sectors and uh, try to find out uh, the difference and similarity between them between the component companies uh, so i will not really call something as pharma but rather it depends upon what kind of uh, what kind of a pharmaceutical company is it is it 
uh, is it a, a bulk drug manufacturer slash generic manufacturing company? Is it a API manufacturer? Is it a, a trading company? Things like that. Is no, it an export oriented countries? So yeah, you were saying something. So what we, when I say pharma, pharma distribution, the, the companies that we have here, they're mostly into a pharma distribution business. You know, they, okay. they bring down the generic and the branded products and they would distribute you. So they, they have their own distribution arms. And in addition to that, we have seen some of these uh, pharma distributing companies, they have uh, uh, gone downstream and started producing their, uh, you know, own, own uh, both generic and, you know, branded drugs so yeah. in, a, in, a in, in a situation like this uh, would you what would you say is, is pharma place to be yeah in? yeah so pharmaceutical companies who has who have started going downstream and manufacturing their own um, drugs uh, they have made a lot of money in, in Indian markets and together with banking and IT, uh, pharmaceutical companies are termed as a third asset light company. Uh, they have huge ROCs, they have very high uh, return on capital ratios, they have very good uh, inherent attractive economics, they earn in dollars, they spend in uh, rupees, Indian rupees and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but Bringing, bringing that perspective to Sri Lanka might not be an uh, easy task because uh, India is a very much uh, export-oriented uh, market, uh, whereas Sri Lanka might be just getting yeah. into those things. Yes. Yeah. So, yes. so what I would say... Focus. Yeah. Right, right, right. So what I will say is this thing that one really needs to take a look at the individual portfolios of those companies. So I would not rather draw a generic, uh, generic uh, uh, conclusion from that, that, hey, pharma is good, this is bad. Uh, but I will say is this thing that uh, what kind of drugs are they making? Are they making the nth copy of a completely ripped off generic drug? or they are making something that is basically not made by anyone in Sri Lanka. So in either way, are they basically acting like commodity suppliers? Mm. You know, the nth copy of, say, for example, something like uh, uh, um, uh, some, some, something like a salicyclic acid, acetylsalicyclic acid, that is disparin in India. Uh, basically, it's a headache uh, medicine. Uh, or are they kind of making something like a hard you know something like a cardiovascular drug or something like a cancer drug or something like a uh, something like a metformin something like that uh, so it depends it depends uh, but either way there will be a certain margin for these pharmaceutical companies and it needs to be assessed whether they can protect uh, these their margins in terms times of uh, these inflationary times because will they be able to raise their prices or not uh, and to really raise the prices, they, you have to ensure that uh, you you have a captive market uh, with you. So it's 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 a, it's a bit it's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, pharmaceutical companies do deserve our attention uh, if if Sri Lanka is building one like that. 
Yeah. Uh, you also asked me about utilities. Now, utilities, utilities have, yeah, you, you also asked me about that. Utilities have a very fixed income cash flow type of revenue stream. Uh, people are not going to, uh, you know, people are not going to cut off their electricity bills, electricity uh, lines, whole water supplies and things like that, just because inflation is there. But because, but their ability to raise the prices uh, becomes a little crimped. And the reason why it, it's, it, it gets important to raise the prices is because, say, for example, an electricity unit costs 7 Lankan rupee. Uh, seven Lankan rupee in 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 2012. Today, if it cost merely ten Lankan rupee for the same unit, then the utility company has really lost its purchasing power. But unfortunately, for many reasons, utility companies cannot raise their prices like that. They cannot really call it as 300 rupee, 300 Langan rupee for per unit, because they have a social responsibility as well. So, I'm not very much in favor of a utility-based fixed cash flow in stream revenue companies. So, yeah. Right. I think okay. Maybe now that you said that, uh, now given that the government is government's need for cash, the government is cash strapped. And uh, I remember reading recently that the government uh, payment dues for uh, the renewable energy company. Now, when you say utilities, uh, what we have is have is mostly uh, the renewable energy companies here. You know that of wind, solar, and hydropower. Uh, so, 13 billion dues uh, from the government. So, so, I think that is also that explains uh, a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because see, understand this point. If in a way the utility companies have really lent to the government 13 billion rupees now in inflationary times the 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 entity who has lent money is really the loser because again the same 13 billion rupees is going to come back to them but with a much lower purchasing power purchasing power yeah so so yeah uh, it's 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 a hard sell at this point right so now that we have looked at uh, asset allocation strategies for an institutional investor uh, now let's let's move to uh, retail investors now retail investors they do not have deep pockets no uh, holding power like uh, institutional investors so what is your recommendation what's your asset allocation strategy for a retail investor yeah so yeah so retail investors are really hobbled by their lack of staying power most of the time energy and money goes and will go into putting bread on the table at least during these inflationary times which is a very sad state of affairs uh, but of those who are slightly better off getting exposure to real estate makes a lot of sense even if one can be part of a cooperative society we in india do have uh, the ability to form cooperative societies that is a bunch of people can come together and uh, draft a common objective and fulfill that objective 
I'm not quite sure if Sri Lanka has it or not, but I'm I'm hopeful that they do. They should have something like that. So we do have cooperative societies, but in terms of uh, you know societies coming together and collectively purchasing land parcels, that I am actually not very familiar with it. But interesting point, you know, I, I'm going to look into yeah. that. Yeah, so the cooperative societies can really come together and purchase those land parcels. And uh, so one should go for them if they can. Uh, if such a cooperative society can also strike contracts with farmers for produce, then they are better off. Uh, so, but survival strategy aside, gold, especially precious metal, uh, becomes the go-to investment vehicle for little investors during times like this. Gold in terms of USD may not be performing well, but don't let that hold you back. In terms of INR, they are trending up. And I'm pretty sure in terms of Lankan rupee, they will also be going gangbusters. It One is, can it especially with the rupee depreciation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. One can also take a look at precious metals like platinum, uh, for that matter. So the bottom line is agriculture real estate and real estate i mean uh, something like a productive real estate like agri land uh, and precious metals at least the, till the tough times do not relent in the horizon of 18 to 24 months as lanka comes out of this this entire lifetime once in a generation crisis one can start thinking about taking incremental risks anything to basically grow that lost purchasing power but yeah, till the times not relent, agriculture and precious metals. Okay, so the Lankan experience in terms of uh, investing in gold, it's a very popular asset class uh, here also. Now, it, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of sentimental value attached to it, just like in India. And also uh, in, the, in the farming community, they uh, use these jewelries, uh, especially during cultivation times, you know, they would pawn it, you know, get their lending, uh, do the harvesting, and then, you know, they would go and, you know, uh, repawn it. Uh, rather, they, they would uh, take the jewelry back. But my, my concern is uh, in terms of liquidity, there is not a lot of liquidity, and especially when you try to sell it, there's a significant liquidity discount attached to it. Yeah. Perhaps yeah. it may not be the case in India, I believe, because there are a lot of gold-based instruments there. You have gold-based gold ETFs, but uh, you know we, we still don't have uh, you know that kind of uh, products in this market. So, what do you think about gold as an investment in that light? Right, right. Liquidity, or rather, the lack of it, is a big problem for those who want to make quick trades and when i say trades i don't really mean trades only in the capital markets uh, but also in real life uh, you you want in you want out you would like liquidity to it but for an investor who is going to really spend his 18 to 24 months period bu buying and keeping gold illiquidity yes it's going to be a cost but he will have to bear it and if do, by bearing this cost, he's also able to protect his and preserve his purchasing power. Nothing better than that. So, so you get the idea. Uh, gold is illiquid, but illiquidity is a cost 
and liquidity is a luxury that we we cannot really afford to bear right yeah. right so i think uh, with that we have come to the end of our first session we've covered a lot of grounds uh, we discussed about uh, why it is important to look at economic profits, especially in high inflationary times uh, versus accounting profits, and also um, uh, global experience in countries where inflation uh, was stubborn, was and is, you know, stubbornly running hot, uh, you know, countries of Venezuela, um, Zimbabwe, uh, what other asset classes have performed well. Uh, and uh, next, we looked at, uh, in terms of asset allocation strategies, uh, what would be um, uh, the strategies for institutional and retail investors. So next, uh, we are going to the second part of this discussion, the, the lighthearted questions, uh, where we actually going to understand you as a person, you know, in a, in a, more, in a more deeper way. Uh, so... I know that uh, you're a, you're a voracious reader. I try. I try so, to read and be better updated. How many how many books do you you know try to read? Let's say you know like per per year. Well, do I you do not read like that. No, I don't. No, no, I don't count like that. Uh, neither do I have a goal like that. Uh, there are times when I revisit the same book. Uh, and I do not really believe in, uh, well, I, I can speed read, but I don't believe that speed reading is necessarily a good thing. Uh, the ideal thing one should do is really uh, take a book, uh, lean back, uh, you know, stare at these ceiling and read every one or two sentences and then think. Uh, because uh, we have been kind of brainwashed into thinking that uh, reading a lot of books is great. I believe uh, that reading a few books, but in a very deep, innate, uh, introspective way is far, far better. So, yeah, I don't have any quantitative numbers uh, in my mind for that. Yeah. I, I also actually call, you know, those women, rather than having like a goal, you know, I also... When I, when I try to read a book, um, you know, I try to get immerse myself in that book, and I, I take a lot of notes if I if I uh, do like it. Okay, talking about notes, um, what helpful um, methods uh, systems have you developed over the last few years in in, in terms of uh, greater comprehension? You know, trying to trying to remember the things that you read in books. I don't have any, I mean, I know people have come up with very interesting uh, note-taking, uh, you know, note-taking uh, systems, but unfortunately, I don't have any. Uh, it's If I have a hard book with me, I like having a thick marginalia, and because I can go to town with the pencil on that. Uh, I'm a very, uh, very voracious scribbler, and uh, people in my family do not really like that because they like to keep their brain, uh, books neat and tidy. I, I, I personally am against that because I feel that, uh, in a way, uh, you know, I have got a lot of grief on that. But I once uh, said that you should really make love with the book. So, so uh, you know, 
uh, I really go to town with a highlighter, with a pencil, uh, even with a pen. Uh, but I scribble a lot. Uh, if it is on Kindle, uh, then what I do is again I highlight a lot, and uh, at times, depending upon how, what I feel and how important the book is or how interesting the book is, uh, I do take notes in uh, free and open source software uh, called Obsidian. Uh, Obsidian is just a Obsidian O B S I D I A N. It's a That's it's a, it's a free and open source uh, version of the famous Notion, uh, Notion software. Oh, right, right. So is this like a, you know like Notion two point zero kind of like advanced version of it? No, no, not really, not really. Uh, it's it's really an uh, it's it's really is an open source uh, version of Notion. As in, like uh, people have kind of uh, copied the features of Notion and put it and coded it and built a fresh new software uh, and called it Obsidian. Nice. I'm pretty sure that Notion has kind of uh, you know. Uh, pulled itself apart in terms of features and in terms of uh, its pop uh, rich rich uh, functionalities uh, from obsidian but for me obsidian works i don't really need a lot of rich features i'm good with it i'm going to try that because what i usually do is um, I, I i scribble on a on a book and then i would trans i mean earlier what i used to do was i used to translate to a word document but now uh, I actually translate to Notion, but I am going to check on this uh, new. I think Obsidian. if you have Notion, I think if you have Notion, Obsidian is not going to really impress you. I don't have Notion, so I, so I use I stick with Obsidian. Okay, okay. Yep. So yeah, the the big question is, what is your favorite book recommendation uh, for an investor? I think. Uh, because our conversation has been so uh, finance slash investing oriented and I read uh, a lot of books uh, spanning from uh, history to uh, technology to sociology to medicine to uh, you know finance and back to technology. Uh, so I'll not really go and uh, go over there but I'll really uh, offer a book called uh, Debt Companies Walking. Uh, so uh, it's a book written by Scott Fearon, and uh, if uh, you bring the if you bring the presentation up, uh, then I can share with you the. Yeah, we'll uh, be displaying it. Uh, right, I can. Yeah, I can share with you the uh, cover page of it, and uh, it's a very nice book where even institutional investors as well as the retail investors can uh, read and understand what really goes on in the minds of uh, uh, a hedge fund manager. So uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting book and it was very, very nice for me. Uh, it, it was a very nice read for me uh, because I learned uh, personally quite a, quite a bit. Uh, one quote I remember uh, from that book was, I'm not perfect at what I do by any stretch, but I'm a very good quitter. I'd say I'm one of the better quitters I know. I'm not going to reveal the context behind it. Uh, and I would really invite the audience to read through it because uh, quitting is something that I learned after, or rather consciously try to pick up after I learned, after I read through this book. 
So yeah, I will say that it's a it's a great read for institutional investors. It's an equally ex good read for uh, retail investors. They will at least learn how professionals do it. So and how sausage is really made behind the scenes. How so, sausage yeah. is really made. Yeah, nice report. Okay, so you said um, uh, I'm going back to the quote you said. So would you say that you are a good quitter? when it comes to a bad book see uh, you know, the, the, good, you know, still continue to read you know if the book is still bad. I, I the catch the catch is this that uh, most books that i come across have been recommended by a very close circle of friends and uh, those circle of friends have very similar tastes uh, in terms of not interests but in terms of their hunger for those insights and aha moments and so it doesn't really matter if it is from medicine or if it is from sociology as long as there are aha moments over there uh, i'm game for it but then there are books which i think that they are overrated or i think i'm not really able to crack through it i keep it aside I, I do not really I do not really go back. So uh, one book that has been there on my bookshelf for I don't remember when I think four five six years, so called uh, Blood Meridian. Uh, it's a it's a masterpiece in itself. Uh, Sorry, I can feel it? it's Blood Meridian. Uh, B L double O D Meridian M E R I D I A N. Uh, it's uh, written by Cormac McCarthy. So. It's a masterpiece. I can feel it, but I have never been really able to penetrate through it. I pick up, try to browse through the first, I try to read the first six, seven, eight pages, chapters, uh, and then I again quit it. So, <laughs> so, so, uh, yeah, but uh, it has a very, very different way of uh, writing. So that is something that I'm not really able to penetrate one of these days. Uh, been so, yeah. there, done that, you know, I feel you. So we've been we've been actually brainstorming about this podcast now for about for a few weeks. And when I when I when I told you that, you know, in the second part of our session, I'm going to ask from you what your favorite book recommendation is. And, and you told me it's it's going to be uh, Dead Companies Walking. And, and I started reading it and uh, I, I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, and I think this is. Thank you. Yes, yes. I, I think this is one of the best uh, investing members I've read. And I, I really like how he surgically analyze and diagnose uh, dead companies, you know, the companies that are about to Indeed. go back up. And, and I think that that kind of that line of thinking actually helped me as an analyst also. Yeah. And I also like the, the level of humility he displays especially in acknowledging uh, some of his uh, investing failures. Yep. So, yeah, yeah. So I think all in all, I mean, it, it, was an, it's very, it was a very joyful and a very intellectually stimulating read. Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You are going to be, you know, one of my, uh, you know, a go-to person for book recommendations. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> So um, we're going to go to the next question, which is our last question. Okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, 
your okay let's say you know you were to host a dinner party and uh, who is the, i mean who's your favorite person to um, invite for that now in, in other words you know what i'm trying to understand is um, your most admired person the person whom you always look up to in the industry so who that person you're going to invite uh, you know if you're to host a dinner party it's such an interesting question because i have this kind of a uh, this uh, idea slash principle that never meet your heroes uh, never meet so your heroes okay never meet your heroes uh, they will uh, they will almost always disappoint you uh, but and and this is one of the reasons that i don't really have a hero per se uh, in my head in my mind people to emulate yes but not a hero uh however i think i'll i'll stick my neck out and uh, and i would like to invite mr ashish kachwalia to it ashish kachwalia is uh, an indian investor it's an indian small cap mid cap investor and uh, he is a singular investor who believes in maintaining an extremely down to earth low profile in spite of his countless successes a man half his wealth and one third his intellect would spend his entire time tom toming his success and uh, hogging limelight but not mr kacholia uh, he believes in making his actions speak louder than words and is rarely visible on mainstream media in fact even alternative media he is there on twitter but he never talks about finance he talks about bird watching sports and things like that but behind the investor he is a person with a deep deep liberal philanthropic bent of mind he is one of the single largest individual donor to a philanthropic uh, philanthropic uh, initiative called uh, curing friends so so curing friends basically uh, brings ngos and donors together and curing friends doesn't charge a single indian rupee from either party so 100% of the donations goes to the ngo so his pet causes education for the underprivileged children and and uh, more or rather rather more than the finance aspect of it i am far more interested in hearing and listening his thoughts about philosophy life uh, how india lives and uh, how india uh, spends its uh, or or what dreams and ambitions do the most underprivileged part of india look uh, or or see uh, he's the son of uh, the social luminary mr ramesh kacholia and to be very frank he's he's a proof that uh, you know the kacholia family has been a net blessing for india uh i i hope that i hope that basically uh, i am able to uh, i'm able to basically leave that kind of a mark when my time is up uh, on the society in which i'm living so yeah let me miss ashish kacholia beautiful beautiful and also about that dinner i think 
you sh you should you know uh, you know go on with it because I know that you are a, a very good cook. You know, we only have to get those plating side of the <laughs> you know. <laughs> so so you have plating. you have only. You, Baji, you have only heard it from my mouth. Uh, wait till you actually try it, and then I will, I will, I will hear, I will hear your uh, verdicts. Yep. I, I definitely look forward to you. You know, once once that's thank you But thank you for thank you for taking my own uh, verdict on the face value. I do that. I do that. <laughs> Uh, so this 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 is great, Soham. Um, I I actually I really enjoyed it. Uh, uh, you know, discussing about this very timely topic, uh, and and also you know goes without saying. I I really enjoyed the second part of the session. Also, it's an absolute joy to speak with you. Uh, I've been following you on fin uh, FinTwit uh, for a long time uh, at Soham Das, and yep. I always want to pick your brain. And I'm so glad uh, that you, you joined as the first guest of Rational Investor. It's an absolute pleasure and an honor to be the to have been the first guest of Rational Investor, and uh, it's a really uh, great joy to having to have to be to be for 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 this conversation where we were able to kind of uh, exchange our stream of thoughts. On such an important topic. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. So I wish you all the best for your future endeavors. Thank you. And I also look forward to having the opportunity to do another episode with you in future. Oh, thank you. Okay. <laughs> thank you. So, yeah. So, again, uh, dear listeners, thank you for joining. Uh, we'll see you again in another two weeks' time with another exciting and a timely topic.